Well, it's really good to be with everybody today. And uh, I don't know if you have ever heard about this uh, young couple that uh, their first year of marriage, it's Christmas, they're spending the holidays together for the first time. And so they wanted to uh, set up kind of their own like traditions as a married couple. And so they go out, you know, they didn't have a lot of money and uh, they bought uh, a ham uh, to take back and kind of prepare like a meal together. So they go back to their tiny little apartment and they're in the kitchen together kind of preparing this meal. And uh, this young bride, she uh, takes out like a pan and this ham and, and she uh, takes a knife and she cuts off either side of the ham, uh, discards that, and then she sets the ham in the pan. And her husband is like beside himself because he's like, honey, we don't have a lot of money. Like, why are you wasting all of that like good ham? And she goes, well, I, I don't know. Uh, this is just the way that my mom always made ham when I was growing up. And so like, well, why did she do it that way? I don't really know. I never asked her. So let's call her. So they called mom. They're like, mom, why did you cut off both sides of the ham whenever you were preparing it? And, and mom said, well, you know, I, I don't really know. Like, that's just the way my mom did it. And so they're like, well, let's call grandma. And so they call grandma and grandma's like, well, honestly, I've never really thought about it. But they, you know, that's the way that my mom did it, great grandma. Well, unfortunately, great grandma was no longer with them. And so, but they did have her cookbook. And so they pulled out great grandma's cookbook and uh, they looked up her recipe for ham. And there in the margins was great grandma's handwriting from like the 1930s. And she just simply made a note to herself. She said, uh, I, I didn't have a pan big enough for the ham. So what began as just a real practical solution in the moment, uh, unfortunately, you know, and unknowingly became a tradition that got hand down from generation to generation. You know, it, it's, it's easy at times to uh, lose sight of what we do and why we do it, uh, simply because, you know, maybe that's just the way that things have always been done. Now, I certainly don't hear me say that I think that uh, traditions are bad. I actually think there's a lot of things about traditions that are really good. Uh, traditionalism, though, will take us off course and off mission. And so I think uh, it, rather than taking the time to sort of reevaluate and assess, okay, what has God been doing in our past? And, you know, what is God continuing to call us to do that is like universal across time? Like God's never going to change that. And then what are the things that he's calling us to do, maybe that are somewhat new right in front of us today? Now that's what this series is all about. We're beginning a new series today. We're gonna to go for the next four weeks called We Are Traders Point. And what I wanna do in the next four weeks, this is like not like just a history lesson on our church. This is honestly to say, hey God, uh, thank you for your provision and faithfulness to us as a church in the past. What have you called us to do that is never going away? It's never changing. But now what are, we, what are you calling us to do next? Like, what is it that you're asking us to do next as a church family? And I think this is so important uh, because uh, for a number of you, you've been in our church for um, a long, long time. And this is just gonna be a really good review as to what God is calling us to. And then others of you uh, have just started coming to our church. In fact, I'm just kind of curious. I did this first hour uh, across all of our campuses. If you've been in our church less than three years, would you just like real quickly, like just raise up your hand, like less than three years. Wow, look at that. Like uh, just, yeah, we could give them a hand, all right? Uh, 
first hour was the same. Just lots of people that have been here three years or less. And so I think a series like this is really important for a number of different reasons. But I think, uh, I just want you to know like what kind of a church you're a part of. I want you to know like what inspires us, what drives us and motivates us. Like what is it that we're trying to accomplish? So you can kind of be all in on that. And I also think that this will be maybe kind of a clarifying series for you to kind of go, well, you know, I I don't know if this is the church for me. And that's totally okay. It takes all kinds of churches to reach all kinds of people. Churches are like fingerprints. They're very, very similar, but there's some distinctiveness to it. Meaning that God has called every Christ-centered, Bible-teaching, you know, Jesus-loving church uh, to a very similar mission. I'm going to get to that in a minute. But then he's called us to be distinct as well. Like what is the unique calling God has placed upon our church? And our church just has this really unusual kind of rich history to it. Um, A lot of people that uh, come here for the first time uh, ask me, you know, well, like, did you start the church? And no, I I did not start the church. Uh, Our church got started, are you ready for this? 188 years ago, right? So uh, turn to your neighbor and say, you look pretty good for almost 200, right? <laughs> like we look pretty good for almost 200 years old. Now, now our church got started uh, 1834 on the outskirts of Indianapolis. The original name was Ebenezer Christian Church. So aren't you glad they changed it? And, uh, and they changed it to Traders Point, which is this township that existed on the outskirts of Indianapolis. Kind of a cool history. This is where people stopped to trade their goods before they headed north to Chicago or out west. This sort of like kind of sending post, which I think is really kind of a, 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 a cool kind of visual for what we're trying to do as a church as well. And there's a lot of history that has gone on in the last 188 years. Did you know the year that our church got started, the refrigerator was invented? The year that our church got started, Abraham Lincoln was 25 years old. All right. So lots has happened in that uh, time. And what I think is really um, amazing about that is that most churches from the time that they get started, uh, have about a 40 to 50 year life cycle. Now, what I mean by that is that a church gets started by a group of people and they've got a, a, a fresh vision from God. They want to reach that community for Christ. And the church has, it's almost like this like S curve. You can trace it across the decades. This church has this like season of fruitfulness where they're reaching people. And then they begin to forget uh, why they cut the sides off the ham and they begin to plateau, and they begin to maybe guard maybe preferences and certain traditions that aren't necessarily bad. In fact, many of them may be good, but they're not mission critical. And so they lose sight of what it is that God's called them to, and then they have this like season of plateau and eventual decline, usually takes, it's painful decades of decline to where they eventually close their doors. About most churches, 40 to 50 year life cycle. Well, our church is nearly 200 years old, which means that our life cycle has kicked over four or five times. What does that mean? That means that there was a generation of people, they saw it at the tip of the S curve, the tip of the fruitfulness, they said, this cannot stop with us. And so we need to take the baton of the gospel message and pass it to the next generation. We need new wineskins for the same wine. We need to continue to pass this on. And we've we've got that embedded in our DNA. And so now is the time in which we as a generation will say, well, okay, God's done something amazing in our church. God's done something amazing in my life. Am I going to keep that to myself? Or are we going to do what we can to pass that to the next generation? So we have to see what God has done in our past and thank him for it and glorify him for it. You know, um, I am uh, so grateful. I told uh, the pastor that I followed, 
a guy by the name of Howard Bramer. He served here for nearly a quarter of a century. And I just thanked him all the time. Like, thank you for letting me stand on your shoulders. Thank you for what you set up here that's made this such a joy and so easy to transition into a new generation. And man, over the last 15 years, we have been, I, I got here 15 years ago this month as a wide-eyed 31-year-old kid who didn't know what he was doing. And pretty much the, um, thank you for that, the, Pretty much the only thing that has changed is my age, all right? And, uh, and I kind of got here. And I didn't really know what was going to happen. We, we, were, uh, we had just moved into this current building, which is our Northwest campus, uh, six months before I got here. And uh, this room that you're sitting now in, if you're in this room with me, seats about 2,600 people. There was 1,500 people in the church when I got here. 300 were kids. So 1,200 adults, two services, which made first service pretty slim. All right, so there was like 250, 300 people in here in the first service. They were just scattered all the crowd across the room. And uh, I was too stupid to know the challenge that was in front of me. And I remember after uh, a service, my third Sunday here, I, was, I got down off stage. I was right over there. I'll never forget this. This uh, gentleman walked up to me and he uh, put his finger in my chest and he said, uh, we will never see the seats filled in this place. And I was just like, Okay, you know, it's like I didn't really know, you know, how to respond to that. But it was just like, this is daunting. This is a waste of space and building. Like, we will never reach that many people. And that has been kind of the challenge in front of us. And you know what? God has continued to multiply it to like multiple campuses and reach uh, thousands and thousands of people. Honestly, I don't really care as much about church size. I'm going to get to that in just a minute. What I really care about is the number of people we've sent out. Like uh, there have been roughly almost like a dozen pastors that have served on our staff that I've, I've just had the privilege of just kind of investing and pouring into. And then we sent them out to either plant a church or lead a church from Florida to California. And they're just out there because we didn't want to be... Um, uh, to kind of use the analogy of like an NFL team, we didn't want to just win like a couple Super Bowls. I want to win like 25 Super Bowls with a family tree of coaches that we just kind of sent out. And so we've sent them out. We've planted churches. Uh, we, we seek to start flagship churches in urban areas around the world because the cities are where the culture is shaped. And if we believe we can reach the city, we can reach the culture. So we just send people out, send resources out to plant churches. Um, since 2011, we've baptized over 6,000 people. I mean, that's just amazing to me. So, you know, uh, prior to COVID, you know, we, we had about, you know, just under 10,000 people attending physically. We had a uh, smattering of people online. Uh, we had six campuses. And then, you know, COVID punched us in the mouth. And, uh, and, I, and I've shared my story with you guys. I've tried to be as vulnerable as I can, just kind of share my heart with you. Uh, it was about 18 months ago that I was just, just in my quiet time with God. I was just praying and reflecting. And I just said, you know, God, uh, like, here in this next year, I'm going to be here 15 years and just, you just run the math, I just kind of feel like I'm at halftime. Like I, I um, feel like um, God's called me here. I love this church. I don't want to go anywhere else. Like I feel like I've grown up here. Like this is just family to me. And I'm just like in another maybe 15 years, that's probably about the time where I need to hand the baton to another leader that'll lead this church into another generation. Like all that Lord willing. And I was just kind of, God, I just kind of feel like I'm at halftime. And then I had this really sobering kind of scary thought. I just said, God, you've done so much over the last 15 years. And I could barely like mutter the words, but I just said, God, are our best years behind us? 
Like our most fruitful years where we just saw people reached and we sent out pastors and we planted churches and multi-sites. Like it was that the first 15 years was like S-curve and then now my last 15 years is just maintenance. Like just plateau and decline. And God led me to this passage in Isaiah chapter 43. He says this. God is talking to the Israelites about how he had delivered them from Egyptian slavery and from Pharaoh through the Red Sea. And God says, I want you to forget all that. It is nothing compared to what I'm going to do. For I'm about to do something, what's the word? New. See, I have already begun. Do you not see it? And then he says, I will make a pathway through the wilderness, a.k.a. COVID. I will create rivers in the dry wasteland, a.k.a. cultural division. God's like, I'm like away. Like, I've already begun. Like, don't you see it? Like, there, there's these obstacles that are in front of you, but I'm going to do something new. Why? Because it's my church. It's the bride of Christ. And God seeks to reach more people in a new generation. And so I, I honestly believe, I've got to believe, that our best years are not behind us, but in front of us. And I'll also say this. Um, it's generally a bad rule to tell God what he's going to do. All right, just generally, all right? So we're not telling God what he'll do. We are um, not speculating what God will do. We are anticipating what God might do. It's this idea of like, God, we're leaning in, we're open to whatever it is you want to do through us as a people. We don't want to be caught back on our heels. We don't want to be asleep at the wheel when you send your spirit to empower a movement to reach a whole new generation. So that's what this series is about for the next four weeks. And, and uh, I'm going to try to do just a lot of teaching today and just really share my, my pastoral heart and kind of vision for where we're going. And so I, I want to, uh, uh, this series is us walking through this diagram right here. I want to throw this up on the screen. This is, I'm going to use a little bit of internal like staff language. We talk with our staff about this a lot. This is called, what you're seeing is the Great Commission Engine. That's just kind of how we've chosen to call it. For short, we call it GCE. And uh, uh, what, by that, I mean that every Christ-centered, God-fearing, Bible-teaching, on-mission church, uh, regardless of denomination, regardless of size, regardless of ministry philosophy or geographic location, is going to have this at its core because every one of these things finds their foundation in Scripture. So in other words, when you look at this, like if you were to pop the hood of a church, you would see that as the engine. And God is very, very clear. Like, so, so we are to help people know God. That's what we're going to talk about today. And then throughout the series, we're going to talk about life-giving relationships, helping you make a difference, all fueled by prayer and the Holy Spirit. Now, I say all that to say that over the past 2,000 years, um, this is the engine of every uh, church that's on mission with God. And God is very, very clear about what the church should be. So he says, uh, uses words like ecclesia, like the gathering of the saints, the called out ones, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. Like God's very, very specific about what it is. God gives us great freedom as to how that might be expressed. Does that make sense? Okay, maybe not. So um, I'll try harder. So when we talk about the Great Commission engine, we're saying, hey, that's under the hood of every car. God's like, make sure you get the engine right. You got to help people know God, life-giving relationships, make a difference, all fueled by prayer and the Holy Spirit. Uh, now the chassis can look what you want it to look like. It could be an SUV, it could be a sports car, it could be a sedan, whatever. Like God's like, uh, it, it can look like any one of those things as long as the engine's right. 
And so this is all fueled by the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. Let me just read it to you. For many of you, you already know it. For others of you, I want you to know the mission of our church. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven on earth. Therefore, what's the word? Go. He doesn't say, therefore, come. He goes, you've got to go. The church is always this movement. They're always this sending. He says, go and what? Make disciples. He doesn't go, go and make converts. Go and make consumers. Go and, you know, you know, fill up a room. That's not what he says. He goes, go and make disciples of all nations, meaning that there's going to be diversity within the church, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey. That's another word for application. So it's like, I'm not just going to like teach you what God's word says, but teach it in such a way that you would apply it. Just obey all these commands I've given you and then be sure of this. You can't do this alone. So I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the great commission. That's what Jesus told every church to be about. Now, if, uh, if a church doesn't have that at its core, like its mission statement can't be found in that passage, then, uh, you know, you might want to find another church. That's, that's what I would say. Is that Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, that's our, all of our mission. Now, how we choose to state our mission statement can maybe be informed by some other things. So I want you to know that our mission statement finds itself as the bedrock, Matthew 28, but then there's some other passages that inform it. Matthew chapter 3. The prophet Isaiah is talking about John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, who comes to prepare the way for Jesus. And it says this of him. He is a voice shouting in the, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord's coming, clear the road for him. So one time John the Baptist was asked, are you the Messiah? And John goes, oh man, I am not the Messiah. I am just here to clear the way for Jesus, who is the only one who can change anyone. Jesus would say in John chapter 12, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all people unto me. So our job as Christians is not to convince anybody. It's not to argue anybody into faith because you can argue them into faith. They can be argued right back out of it. We're not trying to like twist anybody's arms. We are simply saying, let's let Jesus do what only he can. Let's clear the way so people can get to him. And Mark chapter two illustrates this so beautifully. It's one of my favorite passages where you've got these four buddies. My, my theory is that they were all high school buddies and uh, they've got a friend of theirs who is um, a paralytic uh, and he's on a mat and he, they try to get their friend to Jesus. And so they hear that Jesus in, is in Capernaum and uh, he's in a house teaching and Ticketmaster really messed up. They oversold the event. And so nobody can get in. They're all standing room only. And so instead of doing the logical, rational thing, which would have been, hey, let's wait till Jesus finishes his talk and then the house clears and then maybe we'll get an audience with him. They're like, no, no, no. We're going to climb up on top of the roof and tear a hole through the roof. You know, wouldn't you? And it's like, they, and now think about that for a minute. Like I wouldn't tear a hole in my roof, let alone somebody else's roof. And you know, that would have been reckless. It would have been dangerous. It would have been expensive, but it was full of passion. And Jesus rewarded them for it. Jesus is like, I mean, you could just see these guys wanted their friend to get to Jesus so badly, they removed the roof to get their friend to Jesus. Now we've taken all of those passages and sort of like smashed it together to state our mission statement. And our mission statement is we exist to remove, and this next word, I cannot stress the importance of it unnecessary barriers that keep people from Jesus. I hear our mission statement misquoted all the time. And honestly, like it drives me nuts. 
of you are like, well, we're just here to remove barriers. No, we're not. We're here to remove unnecessary barriers. And there's a difference. Because if we say we're just here to remove barriers, that could be interpreted by some. I say, well, we're just trying to lower the bar, water down the gospel, make it easy believism, you know, but that's not what we're trying to do. This is not like a, you know, hey man, like follow your heart, you do you, throw a little Jesus onto the side. That's not what this is. This is unnecessary barriers. Well, what is an unnecessary barrier? Uh, Well, in Ephesians chapter two, it uh, gives us a pretty good little definition. It says, for Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when... In his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. And he did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. In other words, Jesus' whole ministry, the incarnation of God, was that God said, I'm going to remove that thing which has separated me from my people, and I'm going to reconcile back to people through Jesus. Jesus is going to come to do for us what we could never do on our own. So for generations of Old Testament law, like they were having to go to the temple, make all these sacrificial sacrifices to God, and it was messy. It was inconsistent. It wasn't for once and all doing the job. And so God sent Jesus to be our sacrificial lamb. And so Jesus comes to tear down that um, uh, dividing wall of hostility. In Acts chapter 15, when the church gets started, the Jerusalem council meets, like one of the very first church uh, uh, meetings, and they sit down, here's what they were debating. They said, we are making it too difficult for some of the Gentiles to come to know God. We need to clear the way. So that way that we can come to know him. And so uh, what, are we ta- what do we mean when we say unnecessary barriers? Well, we're primarily talking about like dogmatism and legalism and judgmentalism and just like weird experiences that maybe keep people from knowing God. I don't know about you guys, but like uh, I, I grew up in a church that um, uh, just had, can any of you relate to me? When you walked in, it just had a funky smell. And you remember like the ch- funky church smell? You know, you just walk in, you're like, what is that? And, and are we like bottling that up and like pumping that into the air ducts? Like what, what is that? And, 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 uh, and like, you know, we had these, you know, benches called pews. And I just, I hated the word because it was like pew. Like, you know, it's like, it's, yeah, it stinks in here. And, and it was just the, these like uh, unnecessary, like Christianese, you know, kind of, kind of, you know, make it an uncomfortable experience. So that way all people can think about is maybe the environment or how others made them feel and they missed the gospel message. So we exist to remove all of those things that are absolutely unnecessary to get people to Jesus. So how do we help people know God? That's the thing that we are, are aspiring to do. We want to know God and we want to help others know him too. Jesus would pray in John chapter 17. This is the way to have eternal life. To know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. Now, the word know does not mean know about. It's not like, well, I just, you know, I I believe in God. Uh, The word know does not mean head knowledge. The word know means heart experience. It's a personal encounter with God. Uh, the same word that Jesus uses in his prayer in John 17, no, is the same Greek word in Matthew 1 when an angel visits a teenage girl named Mary and says, Mary, you are pregnant with the Son of God. And she says, how can this be? I know not a man. Now, same Greek word. Mary didn't mean, 
I don't know what a man is. She meant, no, I've never been with a man. I've never been in that close proximity. And that's the same word that Jesus uses. Jesus wants us to have an encounter with the living God. So when you have a group of people, a gathering, the ecclesia, who've had an encounter with God to really know God, now we want to help others have that encounter as well. It's too good to keep to ourselves. So how do we do this? Well, my outline today is really, really simple. We gather, we scatter, we stay on message. We gather, we scatter, we stay on message. And if a church begins to plateau and decline, it's because they've forgotten one of those important steps. So we, we gather together. Now, one of the marks of the New Testament church was that they just gathered on a regular basis, both in big settings and small settings. So the early Christians, they gathered in large settings, very similar to what we're doing like right now, um, in the temple courts. And then they also gathered during the week in each other's homes. And I think there's something to that. There is a dynamic about uh, meeting in pairs, that a group of like 12 just doesn't quite fully capture. There's also a dynamic about meeting in a small group, like of maybe eight to 12, that just doesn't capture it in, a, in pairs. And then there's something that you just can't get anywhere else unless you're a meeting in a large gathering like this, where you just feel the power and the presence of God through worship and like corporate teaching. Now, any one of those things in and of itself is not the full expression of the church. It's the combination of all those things. Because primarily, God didn't mean for this to be a thing that we do by ourselves. If you talk to people that will share their testimony or how God got a hold of them and started working in their lives, chances are they will mention the names, a name or a set of names of God, people God sent into your life that encouraged you, that introduced Jesus to you, that fanned the flame of faith in you. Unfortunately, uh, deconstruction is a big thing nowadays in our culture. And if you talk to somebody who's deconstructing their faith or who has church hurt or baggage or they've walked away from God, oftentimes they will mention some names. Names of people that actually hurt them or traumatize them or damage them. See, relationships are a double-edged sword, aren't they? Like right now, what makes your life so rich, enriching is relationships. What makes your life so painful is relationships. And this thing, now there is a personal nature to all of our faith, but it was never meant to be private. So this idea of like, I don't need the church. It's just like God and me. That's foreign to the New Testament is that even the son of God gathered around him a small group of people. And church attendance is not tied to your salvation, right? Uh, just because you're here, we gather every Sunday. That doesn't mean that, you know, God's up in heaven, put a little gold star on your attendance chart. You know, God's not going, oh man, look at them. They are such good Christians. They've got it all figured out. You know, they're in church. No, we gather precisely because we don't have it all figured out. I love what it says in Hebrews chapter 10. It says, let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good service. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. So simply put, the reason why we gather is because life grinds us down. The reason why we gather is to get our perspective adjusted because we can begin to drift and lose our way. The reason why we gather is to remember who God is and why we need him. The reason why we gather in a big setting like this 
is to be reminded that uh, what God is doing in the world is much, much bigger than me, and he's invited me to be a part of it. We gather not just to get our individual needs met and our preferences uh, you know, met, but to serve others. And that act of service actually is what can change ourselves. And Jesus modeled this himself. Jesus says, I've not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And I would say that if you're just coming and showing up and consuming a worship service and consuming a message, but you're not contributing or serving in any way, then uh, you're leaving a lot on the table. You're actually leaving out a significant part of what God wants to do to speak into your life and to grow your faith and to give you your purpose. So I love uh, the digital age in which we live. I think there's some amazing things about it because it's, it's caused us to reach people faster and further than we ever could have reached them. Now, some of you will relate to me. Uh, the church that I grew up in, if you missed a Sunday, like if you got sick, you went on vacation, you just decided to sleep in. If you missed church, you just missed it. Like you couldn't ju jump online and live stream it. You couldn't go, you know, watch the sermon later on YouTube. Like you just missed it. And then technology caught up to us and we developed this amazing piece of technology called cassette tapes. And you could go to the church library and you could check out the sermon cassette tape from the previous week to get caught up if you missed a, you know, uh, uh, you know, a message in the series. And then technology advanced a little bit more and we developed sermon CDs. You know, you could burn the sermon on CD and you could order it that way. And then uh, technology kind of caught up a little bit. And then we could actually put the, the sermon and the service like actually on the website so you could watch it later to, to where we are today. We're during COVID, like everybody was online. And uh, that's kind of how we were gathering together was through digital. And I love uh, digital because it's always been the front door of our church. Before anybody usually ever comes, they'll check it out online. It's like a big front door of our church. If, and here's what I love about it too. If you miss church for whatever reason, you can still join us. Like you, you can stay caught up to speed with kind of where things are, are, are going uh, in the world. And we've been able to uh, reach people uh, in places around the world. I never thought we'd been able to reach them. So we have gatherings of people kind of huddled up like in India and Africa. We have people that email us all the time that live in Charlotte, Denver, and LA. that say, man, like you are our church family. Like we watch online, we gather with other people. Like that, I just, like 20, 25 years ago, I never would have imagined it. Now here's the downside uh, to digital, some pros and some cons. Because we went online solely during COVID, there was a lot of people that were like, man, I kind of like this. You know, it's like, you know, I can just kind of stay in my jammies and, you know, I kind of make pancakes and we just kind of have it on in the background and, you know, we don't have to fight the traffic and find a seat and, you know, we, we can just kind of stay online. And, and, and listen, like, I'm not trying to shame anybody or anything about that. I, I'm simply trying to say there's something significant that you're missing if you stay there, specifically when it comes to worshiping corporately with others. And here's the biggest thing, serving others. Because it's not just me and God in my living room. Now, is the Spirit of God in your living room? Yeah, you bet he is, just as real as he is here. But there's something about getting outside of myself and having eyes for other people that you simply miss. I love how Dr. Tony Evans says it. He goes, I hear people say, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. They are absolutely right. Salvation through faith alone, in Christ alone. But you don't have to go home to be married, but stay away long enough and your relationship will be affected which everybody physically in the room is like, amen. 
to everybody at home is like, click. All right, so <laughs> I get that. Hey man, like this is not any judgment. This is not any shame. I just simply wanna say like, man, like we miss you. And we want, you, we want you to be a part of the family of God. We want you to be a part of what God is doing here. I, I love what online ministry does. You know, in fact, this is a great example. I want to show you a picture. This is Steve and Kelsey Sager. And uh, they uh, started uh, listening and watching our church online about a year ago. They live in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And they would say that our church helped them come to know God online. Like they never attended a church anywhere. They were just watching it online. Um, and, but they, after a while, they, they felt convicted to become a part of a local church in their area. And so they started attending a church and serving at a local church while they were still watching and listening to us online. And uh, they, they got baptized and they said, you know what? We've never been to the church that introduced us to God. We've never been to Trader's Point. So they made a weekend out of it. They took their kids, brought them to Indy. They had uh, kind of fun over the weekend. And then they went, they attended our West Campus. So they're pictured there with uh, Pastor Ryan to visit the campus live for the first time. Uh, and I, I love that. I look at that and I'm like, man, God, uh, we wanna leverage technology and digital to reach as many people as we possibly can. So we're trying to do both. We're trying to engage people digitally and build up the physical body of Christ here. So we gather and then we scatter. One of the things that you see in the New Testament church is that they uh, were not just trying to hold on to people, they were sending them out. The New Testament church has always been a sending movement, sending some of their brightest and their best, sending their resources to others so that the kingdom of God might expand. So I would say the physical posture of our church isn't this where we just have two closed fists. You know, God, you've given us this people, we're gonna hold on to them. You know, God, we have this many resources, we're just gonna hold on to it. No, our posture is we wanna open our hands and say, God, they're not ours, they're yours. So God, you take them, you use them. We wanna bless others. And by the way, open hands, God will take and use for his glory. Also open hands, God will give you more. So this idea of like, God, we just wanna be open-handed before you. We wanna send some of our brightest and our best. We scatter every week when this service is over so that you can go into the community and you can be the light of Jesus Christ where you live, work, and play. We scatter every week so that you can serve single moms and hurting women. We scatter every week so you can minister to lonely broken men. We scatter every week so that you can minister to vulnerable children, to come alongside teachers in the classroom and make sure that they've got supplies for their rooms, to come alongside first responders and let them know that we're with them. See church, I've heard it said, is a lot like compost. If you spread it out, it's a great fertilizer. If you pile it up, it stinks up the neighborhood. And so we wanna like spread out. This is why guys, we have gone multi-site. We didn't go multi-site to grow bigger. Multi-site just complicates everything. We went multi-site to help people around our city be on mission with us. We love every part of our city. So about six, seven years ago, we noticed that there was a whole bunch of people driving more than 20 minutes to this campus. And we were like, hey, that's great, but they're likely not serving and they're likely not inviting their friends. They're not on mission. So let's go to where they are so that way they can uh, be on mission with us. This is the reason why we send significant resources and people to plant churches around the world. This is the reason why we send, as I mentioned, some of the best of our best to, to serve in other churches. In a couple of weeks, we're gonna have one of our missions partners from Kenya here. And you're not gonna wanna miss that as we talk about what God is doing in Kenya through Missions of Hope International. This is the reason why we did men's night and why we will do women's night in January. These are not just cool events, right? It's not like a cul-de-sac where we just say, hey, come into this cool event. It's an on-ramp. 
It's a bridge event into the community. I don't know how many guys reached out and texted me last Wednesday and Thursday before the men's night saying, hey man, I'm bringing a friend of mine from work or I'm bringing a buddy of mine that I fish with. He's never been to church. He's never been to our church. He's never been to this thing. And he's nervous. He wants to know what he's supposed to wear. And I'm just like, man, tell him where, whatever you want. Or, hey man, he wants to know what is he gonna, what, what are we gonna expect here? Like, and he, I'm kind of curious too. Like, what are we gonna expect on men's night? And we had all these guys come to, to men's night that don't normally come to church and they had an encounter with God. I prayed with 30 of them and that was just me afterwards. So that's why we do what we do. All right, so we, we gather, we scatter and we stay on message. We stay on message. We live in a day and age where um, the culture wants to tell us what to say from this platform. And I just want you to know that aside from God's word, I don't have anything we're saying and nothing transformational. And so we're gonna teach what God's word says, but we're gonna do so in a way that, it, that is of itself like living and active. Now, um, I believe that the teaching of God's word in and of itself is powerful enough to change the hardest of hearts. I just believe in the confidence of that um, right down to its core. And a lot of my teaching ministry was shaped and informed by a guy by the name of John Stott. Some of you might recognize that name, others of you may not, but he preached in London in, um, I believe like the 1940s, 50s, 60s. And uh, John Stott wrote a little book that I read when I was in college that really revolutionized my approach to teaching ministry called Between Two Worlds. And he, he had this visual of a canyon and he said on one side of the canyon is God's word. The other side of the canyon is culture and everyday life. And he said, uh, the two uh, uh, extremes that we could fall on is as preachers, we could just stay on the cultural side of the canyon. And we could just kind of pull a few little verses from God's word and kind of sprinkle it into, you know, the culture. Or we could stay on the God's word side of the canyon and shout across the canyon the Greek words that they need to know. And he's like, no, biblical preaching is you build a bridge back and forth between the two canyons and you walk back and forth. Charles Spurgeon said, effective biblical preaching is a Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. So you're saying, hey, this is what God's word says, which by the way, is relevant in and of itself to every generation across all time. So um, I believe that good expositional preaching is simply this, teach it, explain it, apply it, illustrate the application. That's what, that's what it is. Hey, man, here's what God's word says. Let me teach it. Let me explain it. Let me show you why this matters. I'll, here's what I want you to know. Here's what I want you to feel. Here's what I want you to do. And every now and then I'll get people come to me and they'll say, well, what kind of a church are you? And I'm like, what do you mean? And they'll say, are you a church that's for making disciples or are you evangelism? And I really think it's unfortunate that we split it into those two camps because I think healthy New Testament Bible teaching Jesus-centered churches should be about both, don't you? Like we wanna reach people and we wanna make disciples, which means by the way, guys, there's gonna be some tension. There's just gonna be some tension in that. But I want you to know that's the tension that we've chosen to live in. And um, here's my thing is I believe that when I teach God's word, it is enough to feed believers. You are as deep as what you apply. So I wanna like teach believers and I wanna reach people that are really far from God. Meaning this, when you invite a friend to church, 
um, I promise you uh, it won't stink in the air, right? Like, like we're not going to like, what is that smell, right? Like we're, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do any like, weird, that, weird stuff like that. I want you to know that uh, you can bring your unchurched friends and I'm not going to say anything abrasive or weird or obnoxious from stage. Now, I, w- I will say something that makes them uncomfortable. I will something, say something that brings conviction because that's the way lives are transformed. But uh, here's, here's my goal every week. Somebody really, really far from God uh, walking in here and they walk out and they go, I don't believe what he believes. And I don't believe that's God's word. But you know what? That made me think. And that was really helpful. And it was hopeful. I have hope. And, and that was helpful. I'll come back. And I've been doing this long enough to know you get somebody who goes, man, that was helpful and hopeful. And they keep coming back and they keep coming back and keep coming back. You know what happens? They run into Jesus and Jesus changes their lives. That's what we're trying to do, right? So we live in this kind of like day and age. This is like a really wild thing where something happens in the news or in culture and you see it on social media. Hey, if your pastor doesn't say blank, you need to go leave and find another church. Now, please hear my heart. I am not saying that we need to be tone deaf to what happens in culture. As shepherds, as pastors, if the culture is hurting because of something that happened in the news, we need to lovingly address it, pray over it, and actually guide people to what God's word says about it. But I'm not going to let what happens in the news dictate what we say on the platform on a consistent basis. We stay on message. We stay on message. Uh, And here's why. Churches move at the speed of unity. Now, don't hear me say that and say, well, we all got to agree on everything. That's not what unity means. Unity means the opposite. Unity means we disagree on secondary issues. We agree on primary issue, which is the Lordship of Jesus Christ, salvation by faith and not by works, that we are sinners in need of God's grace. That's our main message. Uh, We can disagree on all the secondary ones. And we, we don't have to look alike, talk alike, think alike, act alike to be unified around the person of Jesus. In fact, did you know that Jesus' dying prayer was unity? Look at what he said in John 17, verse 9. My prayer is not for the world, but for those you have given me because they belong to you. All who are mine belong to you and you have given them to me and so they bring me glory. Now, I am departing from the world. They are staying in this world, but I am coming to you. Holy Father, you have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name so they will be united just as we are. Then on down to verse 20, he says this, I am praying not only for these disciples. Who is these disciples? Well, it's the 12 that were in front of him. He goes, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. Who's that? Turn, yeah, right. You turn to your neighbor and go, man, that's you, bro. Like, that's you, girl. Like, he's talking about us. I pray that they will, say it out loud with me, all be one. Just as you and I are in one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and they may, they may they be in us. Why? So that the world will believe you sent me. In other words, Jesus doesn't say, hey, unity is a good thing to do so that we can all just kind of circle up and sing kumbaya and just get along. No, he goes, unity is mission critical. That's why he prayed it. He said, so that the world would know. Guys, may we never forget our experience of grace. May we never forget. It is so easy. If you're in a burning building and somebody throws you a ladder and you climb up the ladder, our automatic human reaction is to pull the ladder up behind us and forget about everybody else that's in the house. And there's a lot of Christians that live their lives that way. Man, I'm so thankful I got saved. 
but we forget there's still people that need to know God. And that's why I love uh, the story. I just want to share with you real briefly. I want you to take a look at the screens. Take a look at Chris's story. started playing guitar around 12 years old. The attraction probably started with just wanting to be like my dad. He taught me a few chords in the beginning, and then I, I would spend four hours in my basement pretty much every day just playing guitar and learning that. But then it grew into this like absolute love for music. It's always been a constant throughout any season of my life. senior year of high school is kind of when I had stopped going to church but music was always there and when you start adulting it's you're kind of just by yourself and everybody kind of flees one way that's it there's no more bands so my connection was was still continuing worship at various churches I was filling that void of you know just wanting to be on a stage and and kind of doing it for myself there wasn't anything God-related once I walked out the church building. I spent 10 years doing that. Just I felt like life just wasn't ever going right. There was a lot of, you know, losing jobs, moving places, different disappointments along the way. Around the start of 2020, um, my wife at the time asked, uh, asked for a divorce and I was right on the heels of COVID and shortly thereafter I was in a really dark space. Eight months or so into that, for the first time in my life I was, I was suicidal. Um, that's the, yeah, I, I never thought I could ever get to that point, but I didn't want to create any issues for anybody. I wasn't like, you know, it wasn't a cry for help. It was just I wanted out. There was one night when I was just in that dark space, I, I laid down for bed and I opened up my laptop and I typed in most painless ways to die um, and my internet just, just stopped working. And so I tried reloading the page and it never worked. And so I just shut my laptop and went to bed. That next day I worked with my dad at the time. And I remember him saying, when people have times like these and they're in crisis, he said, I don't think there's anything wrong with nearly demanding God, like, this is what I need right now. I'm on my way home in my truck. I was listening to Caleb Radio, which wasn't, wasn't abnormal for me to listen to. I had uh, this David Crowder song on, and I really liked the song. <laughs> and I remember, um, for some reason, I just felt like I should try this praying thing. It was almost for the first time in my life, I think I actually, like, tried to pray, like legitimately pray. And I was like, well, this is like, this is the only chance that you have got to show me something. But I remember with that song on, I had turned it down so I could kind of do my prayer. I turned it back up and Crowder played like the last three notes of the song. And I remember for a brief moment, like being pretty irritated. Like really, I just did this for you. And now, and now um, you ended this song that I love. And then the next song that came on was this song called Together by For King and Country. 
If you're looking for hope tonight, raise your hand. If you're feeling alone and don't understand, if you're fighting the fight of your life, then stand. We're gonna do this hand in hand. And then in that moment, almost physically felt like God literally grabbed hold of my heart. And I started crying so hard, like I couldn't even see the road. And I ended up pulling over in a neighborhood um, and sat there for a good 30 minutes or so. I'd always thought of God like, like, oh, once you're with God, you know, everything's happy and li life is great because you have God. In that moment was the first time I'd ever had a realization that God will always be there in those low, low moments as well. I ended up going to bed. I woke up at 2.30 in the morning. I just had this overwhelming, like, read your Bible. I knew absolutely nothing of this story at all. I had heard the book before, but it was the book of Job. I ended up reading 21 chapters. It was exactly how I felt. Like, it was this guy who had everything. In my case, I had the American dream, the two kids and the wife, and Job had everything and then absolutely lost everything. It just like opened my heart, opened my, my want to understand. I could no longer question that there was a God. And then it was Saturday morning, I was up and I, I looked up churches, found Trader's Point that was like four minutes from my house. The first person I met was, was Bart Shaw. I didn't know he was the campus pastor. I just thought he was this nice guy who was on the welcome committee. <laughs> and then I came back that next week with my kids. He took a real interest in, in Julia and Bennett. And then two weeks went by and I saw Bart again and he goes, hey, Julia and Bennett. That was a moment when, when I knew like this was a place I wanted to call home. I spent about a year just really enjoying my time at Trader's Point. I felt so much hope. Like I, I just craved this and wanted it and I didn't have all the answers, but once I was actually listening and I, I think I realized like, okay, there's for sure a God, get into the congregation and listen and, and learn. I think it was just, I was listening at that point and I was never listening before. I'd like to think it was because of uh, the moment that I had with God and my, my whole conversion, that God's brought me even closer to music. My perspective is so much different. The greatest gift that I can give to people is through music, and so that, that's why I'm on the Trader's Point team. I'm a part of something. I get to stand up there and praise and worship Jesus alongside the, the people sitting in the seats. I just always wonder and hope that, that there's somebody out there that, that has that same level of connection could impact them in the same way that it did two years ago for me. Man, I love that. Can we give it up for Chris sharing his story? Man. It never, never gets old, never gets old. Hey. I want to just wrap up by just uh, uh, giving you a visual for how I feel like uh, we can best help people have an encounter and know God. 
All right, so I've got this uh, little Venn diagram up here because, you know, I know for some people, Venn diagrams are their love language. All right, and so uh, this is just kind of a visual where these are just some observations I've had just over the last few years. Like I grew up in church, went to Bible college, been pastoring for 20 years. And I would say that as I look at the New Testament church, there's three streams of churches that come out of the New Testament represented by these three circles. And if we were to give them a name, by the way, they all have found, uh, scriptural foundations. Uh, I believe that every God-fearing, you know, Jesus-centered, you know, Bible-teaching church is going to maybe find themselves in one of these three streams. But if we were to kind of title it, one would just say like the doctrinal stream. So these would be like Word of God churches. If we're talking about the Trinity, maybe this boast represents God the Father. And so uh, honestly, uh, this is kind of the church that I grew up in. It was a high, heavy emphasis on doctrine, word of God. Maybe some of you, I see some heads nodding, like, yeah, that's kind of the church you, you grew up in. And uh, we see, you know, scriptural foundations for this. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word is with God and the word was God. We see that uh, in Hebrews 4, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. All right, so uh, strengths of uh, churches in this stream is that they are great at expositional teaching, uh, a high value on theology, can really discern false teaching, like really, really devote students of God's word. They make disciples really effectively. Um, uh, some weaknesses, and this is not judgments, this is not stereotyping, just general observation, is that at times, if not careful, and I'm speaking from experience because I've been in this camp, is that we can maybe be a little dogmatic, a little legalistic, a little judgmental, kind of looking down on others, really good at cleaning up the saved, not so good at reaching the lost and hurting. Another stream would be what we might call like attractional. This would be like mission of God churches. Talking about a member of the Trinity, maybe that would both represent Jesus, the son. And so these are churches that um, have a high emphasis on evangelism. And we see like First um, Peter 3, we just walked through this. Always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. 2 Corinthians 5, we are ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Like the Great Commission obviously would fit into this. This is just too good to keep to ourselves. We've got to reach people. Strengths of this, really, 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 really good at reaching people far from God. Really good at organizational health, structures, systems, scaling, all that kind of a stuff. Um, weaknesses of this movement, uh, maybe at times, if not careful, uh, can be a little bit theologically light, maybe drift into some shallowness, maybe start to over-assimilate to the culture. There's nothing distinct about what we're doing. Sermons end up turn turning into self-help uh, talks. Here's the uh, third stream. It's what we might call the, um, the uh, um, charismatic. And the charismatic would maybe be more in, um, kind of this idea of movement of God. A person of the Trinity that represents would be the Holy Spirit. Forgive my kindergarten handwriting, all right? So, uh, and uh, we see uh, scriptural support for this as well. The whole book of Acts, right? We just see the spirit of God showing up in big ways. And, and actually they were speaking in languages they didn't know. For, for, so cross-culturally people could come to know God. The power of God was in that. Strengths of this movement. They give us some of the best worship music on the planet. <laughs> right? Uh, uh, I want people in this stream praying for me. Because sometimes uh, Christians can be tentative in their prayers and they're like, Lord, if thou will, would you please consider? People in this stream, they're like, God, heal him now. 
you know? And it's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and this camp, like they're, uh, they're all about um, uh, uh, faithfulness and passion and healing. Like the spirit of God, please show up, right? So we've got all of the uh, weaknesses of this particular movement is that we can elevate personal experience over good theology if we're not careful. So it's like, well, you know, God told me this. Well, that kind of runs counter to what his word said. And so, so we've got to be, be careful about all that stuff. So, so here's just an observation that, that I've made, is that as I go through these three uh, streams or these three circles, chances are, even if you don't have any church background, or maybe you came from a Catholic background, there's one of these circles you probably resonate with over the others. I do. Like, so as I said, like, chances are maybe the church you grew up in was like right here. Or, or how about this? The church you came to know Christ in. The church you came to know Jesus, we have a tendency to really lean towards that stream uh, or maybe just your personality type. Your personality fits more over here, whatever. Nothing wrong with any of it. As I've said, it's all in scripture. Now here's the challenge is that what we have a tendency to do is we lean towards one of these streams and we sort of look down on the others. Maybe it's not too strong of a word. We may even villainize the others and say, well, that church is off mission because they, they do this. And I don't think that, that that's actually hurting the body of Christ. Here's just an observational observation from pastoral ministry. Speaking as a pastor, it's really, here's how churches get off mission. One of the ways is uh, pastors perceive which, how many people are in one of these streams and we end up leaning hard into a stream to keep the Christians we've already reached happy. And we let a whole bunch of people go to hell. So what I'm saying is, is that we don't want to just lean one way into one stream uh, at the, uh, and, you know, villainize the others. So what, like, what kind of church are we? And even some of you are like in your seat, you're trying to guess, you know, like, you know, which, which circle is he going to put traitor in? Or some of you are like, I know which circle we're in. It's so clear. And others of you are like, well, I don't know. So, so here's the thing. I want to be a word of God church that is uh, uh, really on mission with God in the world, fueled by the movement of God. So here's where I want us to be, right here, right in the center of that bullseye. Now, here's what that means. That means none of y'all are gonna be happy, right? That's just, that's what that means, right? So that, that, means, that means that there's like somebody in some stream that's gonna go, I don't think you're word enough. I don't think you're mission enough. I don't think you're, you know, listening enough to the Holy Spirit. And, and so, or, or there's things that just kind of confuse you. Why do we do worship night? You know, why did we do that series? Why do we have lights and haze on a stage? Like there's gonna be lots of things that maybe kind of leave you a little bit scratching your head. And I just want you to know, you don't have to agree with everything. It doesn't fit into all your preferences. Here's where I want you to know our heart. And by the way, not every decision that we make is the right one. And oftentimes we make a decision and I go, man, this stinks. We should have never done this. And it was my idea. So thankful for God's grace, all right? I just want you to know we're aiming for this, that we wanna be a word of God, mission of God, movement of God, church. Now, for some of you, that's really clarifying, right? All right, we're out. Like, I don't wanna be a part of that church. I wanna be a part of a church that leans more. Then you know what? That's totally fine. Lord bless you. We love you. We'll give you suggestions for how to find that church. Others of you, you're like, man, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of that. That's what we're perceiving God is leading us into the future. And so I don't want to just reach people for the sake of reaching them. I want to reach people so that they will know the word of God and have an encounter with God and grow to be disciples. So I want to close with this. Uh, one of my favorite stories is of a Bible translator in Papua New Guinea who years ago went over to this little village 
and uh, he had interpreted or he had translated the New Testament into a language the Bible had never been translated before. And so they're in this village and he's passing out these New Testaments and a, a guy walks up to him just smelling like marijuana. And the guy said, uh, hey, uh, I really want your New Testament, but I, I don't plan on reading it. And the translator said, well, what do you plan on doing with it? And he said, honestly, I, I plan on smoking it because the pages are so thin, they make for really good wrapping paper and I'm gonna wrap it up and I'm gonna smoke it. And he's like, well, thanks for your honesty. Um, and being real quick on his feet because you know he could have just been like, no, you're not gonna do that. He actually looked at the guy and he said, hey man, I'm happy to give you a New Testament. You can do with it whatever you want, but I wanna make you a deal. Before you rip out a page and smoke it, would you read it? And the guy was like, okay, yeah, I can do that. And so he takes the Bible, the translator's like, I'd never, I didn't, you know, didn't think I'd ever see him again, didn't think that he would actually do it. He comes back to the village two or three years later, he's in the same little location and he sees that same man standing in the back, clear-eyed, healthy looking, joyful, walks up to the Bible translator, goes, hey man, I don't know if you remember me. And he goes, oh, I do. And he said, uh, what happened? And he goes, well, I took you up on your offer and I took your New Testament and I smoked Matthew. He's <laughs> like, like, I read a page, smoked a page, and I, I, I smoked Mark, and then I smoked Luke. Like, this is a lot of marijuana, right? And then he said, I got to the Gospel of John, where I read the words, for God so loved the world, and I could smoke no longer. And he gave his life to Christ, and his life was radically changed, because why? because he had an encounter with the living God. Listen, I want you to know God. I don't just want you to know about him. I don't want you just to kind of tip your hat, kind of acknowledge his presence. I want you to have a living encounter with him. And man, if you get a group of people that have had an encounter with the living God, God will show up and do amazing things in that community and in that city. I don't want our best days behind us. I don't wanna go into maintenance mode for the next couple decades. I don't wanna just plateau and decline. I don't wanna play church or just try to keep Christians happy. I wanna reach people that are far from God who will one day come up to us in heaven and say, thank you. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you that it wasn't just all about you. Thank you for willing to cross the line and the barrier. I love what it says in Jude, and I'll close with this. Jude says, I want some of y'all to smell like smoke meaning we were so close to the flames of hell, snatching people from those flames so that they might come to know God. So right now, we're just gonna have, hopefully, an encounter with God through communion. And hopefully you grab communion on your way in. If you didn't, we'll try to get that for you. But we just wanna spend a few moments together in the silence as the people of God gather together to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. So I'm gonna give you about 90 seconds or so after I pray, just for you to spend a little bit of time in your seat taking communion. Father, we come to you right now and I thank you for your faithfulness to the big C church and thank you for your faithfulness and provision to the little C church, which is Traders Point. God, thank you that we are part of just such a rich legacy. May we never forget our experience of grace. God, I pray that this leg of the race would not be the final one or the least fruitful one but that we would know that there's a whole generation coming behind us and we need to pass the baton of the gospel to them. So God, help us to be a word of God church that is passionate about 
the mission of God that is fueled by the movement of God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, so that we might reach as many people as possible for your glory. And the church says, amen.